Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Here at A Better Peace, in addition to discussions of current events and security policy, we aim to introduce our audience to some of the most interesting new works of military history, social science, the interaction between the two. Today, we are pleased to welcome three scholars to discuss their new book, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Military Culture Programs, 2004 to 2020, from Marine Corps University Press. In nine essays, a roster of scholars discusses the role of culture programs in American military policy since 2004, when war in Iraq spurred renewed interest in teaching warfighters about the places where they would be fighting their wars. And the collection discusses the persistent challenges such programs face. One particularly stubborn challenge is the question of how much depth such programs can or should present when the military itself is not clear how much culture it needs, or how such programs should survive what the editors call, quote, the tendency of the Department of Defense to gradually shift uncomfortable ideas back into business as usual. Our guests today include the editors of the collection, Dr. Kerry Fosher and Dr. Lauren McKenzie, as well as one of the contributors, Dr. Allison Abbey. Kerry Fosher is a cultural anthropologist and director of research at Marine Corps University. She worked on military and intelligence community culture programs from 2006 through 2020, including 10 years as the director of research for the Marine Corps' service-wide program that provided cultural, regional, and language training and education. Lauren McKenzie is Marine Corps University's professor of military cross-cultural competence. Her research interests revolve around the impact of cultural differences on difficult conversations to include end-of-life communication, relationship repair strategies, and most recently, the role of failure in teaching and learning. Finally, Allison Abbey is Professor of Organizational Studies at the U.S. Army War College. From 2006 to 2011, she led a program at the Army Research Institute on assessing and developing cultural skills in military personnel. She holds a PhD in social and personality psychology and currently teaches strategic leadership, defense management, and inclusive leadership. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. Thanks, Ron. So to start, I want to ask uh, Carrie and Lauren, what led you to this topic and to create this collection of essays? And how does it fit with your previous research? Well, Ron, um, first, thanks for having us here today. We appreciate the chance to talk about the book. Um, I'll lead off and let uh, Lauren chime in. Uh, as she sees fit. So certainly the catalyst for getting the project started was the closure of the Marine Corps Culture Center, which happened in June of 2020. But we had known for quite a while that a book like this was needed. Um, the militaries and the intelligence community's interest in culture and the people who study it, it it's cyclic. There were programs in World War II and Vietnam. Uh, Allison has written some about this. 
but they didn't last. Uh, the capability gets shut down and then recreated every couple of decades. And the consequences of that um, and the lack of continuity that it brings are borne by junior military personnel and the people that they interact with. Uh, and I can tell you that in this most recent cycle, it wasn't easy to find information about what worked and what didn't work last time. <laughs> so a lot of programs started from scratch rather than learning from the past. So we wanted to create a book that was going to be useful to people still working on culture, but also a, a sort of message in a bottle for the next group of people who have to rebuild the cultural capabilities. Um, a lot of the literature uh, about the last 15 years of culture programs was uh either written about programs that were not training and education oriented, like the Army's Human Terrain System or science and technology projects. Uh, there's very little about training and education programs. It may have been because we were all too busy building them to write about them, but um, there just wasn't much out there. And a lot of the rest of what was available was written by outside scholars who didn't have very in-depth understandings of the programs that they were writing about. So we wanted to put together a book that would capture lessons learned from the inside before everybody scattered to the four winds, and also one that emphasized that importance of education and training across all the different services. So before I go to Lauren- And if I could add to oh, what Carrie said, uh, I think there was also somewhat of a, a personal and relational dimension to our motivation to put this edited volume together. So uh, if I could just back up for a second. So oftentimes when we're talking about cultural values or if I'm teaching an intro to culture type of class, you know, I'll often say to students that, that oftentimes we don't know what our cultural values are until they're violated. Uh, so think about your, you know, uh, preoccupation with personal space, for instance, or obsession with being on time, something like that, right? I found that I didn't recognize how connected my professional identity was to the Marine Corps Culture Center until it closed down. I found myself kind of lost at first. And while I was looking for a new place here at Marine Corps University to, to belong to, and then simultaneously we had some unexpected time stuck at home due to COVID, this project became especially meaningful like as a way sort of to capture what we've learned, you know, like Carrie said, a message in a bottle to future folks who might, you know, be charged with, with standing up a culture center at some point in time, but also the relationships we've formed. And it was a wonderful walk down memory lane with colleagues from across branches of service and different academic disciplines. Um, so I guess as the saying goes, um, the research became me search. It became very personal and, and in, in a way sort of therapeutic, reaching out to colleagues that I might have lost touch with that are still actively working in the culture community, but that maybe we didn't have a reason to connect with. So I'm grateful to Carrie. This was her brainchild and it was just a really meaningful and rewarding project to be part of. See, that's very interesting. I was thinking when, when Carrie was initially talking, there's the old uh, the, the old highfalutin line from Hegel that the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. So it's uh, it seems there's a connection between closing down these programs and deciding to write and think <laughs> about them. But I but I also like your <laughs> reference to research as me search, right? That this is, and I guess one of the things we'll probably get to um, in the course of this conversation is why we close such programs down. And it is worth noting, Carrie, the the comment that you made um, that there didn't seem to be a lot of reference to previous efforts. It's almost like the military, it's like learning. I was talking to Allison just the other day, right? Learning about counterinsurgency, right? The military studies it and then um, they can't wait to say, boy, I'm glad I'm never going to have to do that again until I rediscover it 
20 years later. Um, but uh, to talk about who is included in a program like this or in a, in a, in a volume like this, um, for the editors and also for Allison as a representative contributor, um, what kinds of what kinds of criteria did you have for the selection of topics and uh, contributors to the volume, and how did you make how did you make those editorial decisions? Well, I'll kick this one off, um, but since I just spoke, I'll, I'll quickly turn it back over to Carrie and Allison. So sure. initially, our goal was to include sort of a blend of three different three kinds of difference together. Uh, so first, we were interested, as I said just a moment ago, we were interested in various academic backgrounds. So for example, we have folks here contributing from the fields of international relations, anthropology, psychology, and communication. Um, along with that, we were interested in contributions from folks who have had, had affiliation or uh, experience with different branches of service. Uh, so in this case, you know, we have Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Army. Um, and then finally, and, and I think this is important uh, for those who might be interested in reading the book to understand our logic as we were ordering or thinking about the sequence of the chapters. We were interested in different types of involvement in the DOD culture effort. So uh, the, one of the first chapters is devoted to sort of the need for the culture capability, sort of writ large. That's then followed by sort of the complexities, challenges, and lessons learned um, we associated with teaching culture in the PME or the professional military education context. And then finally, we were also interested in capturing some of the programmatic efforts to both launch and run various culture efforts. Um, and then I guess I'll just close by saying we are also able um, to close the edited volume with with a chapter that is in the form of an interview with the gentleman that both um, Mr. Jeff Baer, who, who initially stood up the Marine Corps Culture Center, and then uh, Mr. George Dallas, who closed the Marine Corps Culture Center in June of 2020. So we're able to sort of capture some of uh, what they've learned and some messages that they wanted to share. Um, and again, as Carrie alluded to earlier, all of this is in the hopes of preventing a sort of cold start the next time the DOD decides to reinvest in a culture capability. But that was sort of our logic as we were putting this together. But uh, maybe I'll turn it over uh, to Carrie if she wants to just say a few words about some things that maybe we wish we had mentioned and didn't or some folks we wish we had acknowledged but didn't. Sure. Go ahead, Carrie. So certainly there's a lot that we were not able to, to cover in the book, but for the purposes uh, that we're at today, I'll just say that one thing that I, I really regret not getting more of into the book is discussion about the work that was done by some of the early proponents. Um, I think about people like Remy Hajar, who's now on the faculty at West Point, but was part of the Army's Culture Center at a time when he was absolutely critical to the development of concepts of cross-cultural competence that went on to shape programs across the services. Uh, Paula Holmes Eber and Brock Salmoni, who were instrumental in establishing the Marine Corps Culture Center and getting a foothold in Marine Corps professional military education. And then uh, I think most importantly, all of the military personnel uh, who helped uh, think about people like Todd Lyons, John Byrd, uh, Bill McCullough, and a lot of others who made substantive contributions, but they also are the people who carved out the organizational spaces and gave us the top cover that we needed so that we could all get the work done. You know, the book ended up being written mainly by scholars, um, although the, a few people in there with military backgrounds. 
Um, but we've only ever had one piece of this puzzle and getting anything at all done requires partnerships um, with all of the other people who had the other pieces. As I, I actually hope one of the, one of the things that people take away from this book is that building and sustaining cultural capabilities, right? I guess really any, any large complex capability takes a lot of collaboration. It takes a lot of compromise and it does take a, a willingness to recognize that no one of us has all the answers. Right. That's great. And so, so Allison, for you as a contributor to the volume, you obviously had your specific experience that you brought to it as well. So your, your aspect of the me search as well as the research, but how would you uh, describe your contribution to the volume and your experience with cultural programs? So my background as a psychologist working a little bit on the periphery of these programs um, was as an early career behavioral scientist uh, without any experience uh, engaging with policymakers. And um, so initially, the, some of the, the learning experiences that I had engaging with the training and doctrine command as they shaped the army culture and foreign language policy, uh, working with the TRADOC culture center, um, and, uh, across services, uh, with some of the other culture centers and programs was really, um, challenging for me without having that experience beforehand. Uh, so my, my goal in my chapter was to talk about some of the lessons that I learned along the way that I wish I had known before I started that would have been helpful uh, in, in being maybe more effective at conveying the state of the science um, and transitioning that to inform the programs and the policy more effectively. Um, it did have some success, as as Carrie noted. It was because of some of the uniform personnel that that carried the message. Um, and so, in my chapter, I tried to convey some of those those lessons that I think would have been helpful had I known before I had started down that path. But you, you ended up in it anyway. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, for, for many of us, right, you know, we, uh, you know, sometimes we think we know where we're going, but we don't realize where we were going until we get there. But a, a question for all of you to think about this, right, is the, the very idea that uh, cultural programs and cultural, in, in cultural centers are opened and closed and uh, expertise is called together and then, I don't know, sent back out into the wild. Um, do you think it is a problem that the United States military views culture programs as something that is optional and temporary rather than a permanent piece of training warfighters for in their future roles for United States security policy? I throw that open to the floor, but I'm curious what anybody has to say about that. Well, I'll, I'll kick off. Um, it's just, this is a question I've had to answer a fair amount in academic uh, I can conferences imagine. where people are just scratching their heads. Um, so, I, I mean, yes, it is a problem, but it's a highly predictable one, you know, like rain in Seattle. You know it's going to happen. Um, I, I think a fair number of us knew when, when we started this work that the, uh, the interest is cyclic. Um, we hoped that we would be able to overcome it, but uh, certainly we're not counting on it. Um, I, I think what is more problematic, uh, any large bureaucracy is going to have a, a well-developed forgettery. Uh, 
and is going to reinvent things from time to time. But the really important thing is to have systems in place so that you can archive the capabilities, keep track of the ideas, because there will always be a few people around in any large bureaucracy who remember what was done. You just have to make sure that they're equipped with the materials so that they can get things rolling again. I know that's not a very satisfying answer. It just, I think it's a, it's a realistic one, having looked at big bureaucracies for the last several decades. Oh, I totally get that. And I got to say- and maybe I'm, if I could oh, add on to that. Sure. Uh, and, yeah, go ahead, Lauren. And maybe if I could add on to what Carrie just said, I, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Air Force Culture and Language Center. So unlike- um, the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps Culture Centers, the Air Force Culture and Language Center is thriving. Um, so, you know, run by by Mr. Howard Ward down in Montgomery, Alabama at Air University, uh, his, he has a very strong, robust team of faculty. And, and their culture center, um, comprised of scholars and practitioners, is, is alive and well. And, and they've been able to find a way to, um, to keep things going and, and um, to stay alive in a way that I think, um, you know, could become a model for the other branches of service. Although, again, we all have different missions, um, but I, I, I would be remiss if we, we didn't recognize that team. Um, I think they're doing a lot of great work and they hold the annual LREC, the Language Regional Expertise and Culture Symposium each year. Uh, and I believe this past year, a few of us were part of it and it was, I think it was called Hindsight 2020. <laughs> then Carrie and I talked about our book and we brought together some of the uh, contributors like Allison, uh, Susie Steenet, Angel Cachadori, and Brian Salmeski and others uh, to talk about their contributions to the work. And, um, you know, we're just lucky uh, and, and feel lucky that our community is, is kept alive through a number of different events throughout the year. But the LREC Symposium is, is the premiere, I would say. Well, that, that, and I would just oh, like Allison, to yeah. point out the irony of that um, observation by Lauren that it's the Air Force that has retained the most cultural capability for its personnel than the than the land services, the Marine Corps and the Army, which have largely divested in that training for their personnel, um, and and will have to at some point uh, reinvest in it in the future. I'm so glad you said that, Allison. I was thinking about that as I was I was trying to decide, you know, one of these things is not like the other, right? What is it about the Air Force that makes them more interested in maintaining language when they're the ones who can stay thousands of feet away from other cultures with which they are interacting? Uh, I Although know. I think it's worth pointing out that uh, <laughs> a lot of the current efforts also started at Air University. Uh-huh. So um, there's a tradition it, there. Yeah, they, they were... Um, fortunate to have uh, an individual by the name of Dan Hank, who uh, very early on tried to start bringing people together. So while there were these nascent little pinpoints of culture programs going on, you know, Allison was already working on this. A few other people were already working on this. Um, He had the foresight to start trying to bring us together. Uh, And all of that happened through uh, the the little cross-cultural competence initiative, which later turned into the culture center there. But this raises a question that I wanted to make sure I asked all of you, um, is what should the role of PME institutions like Army, Navy, Marine Corps, uh, Air, uh, War Colleges, what, what should their relationship be to these cultural programs, even if there are not formal cultural programs? Um, is there something that we can do 
um, in professional military education to keep some kind of cultural understanding, cultural learning alive, even in the absence of, of extensive programs? I guess one of the things that I'd like to bring up, this was really emphasized by the the director of the Marine Corps Culture Center, George Dallas. I mean, he really encouraged me years ago um, to try to move beyond national difference when we're talking mm. about culture. And so I think as, as the years have gone on, what has resonated more, I think with PME students has been to think about culture more broadly, perhaps culture as a lens, um, but again, to think beyond national difference. So to think about gendered differences, generational cultural differences, organizational culture differences, and that 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 could be more enduring. It's not to say that that personnel don't need just-in-time culture-specific training um, before they deploy or, or PCS. Of course they do. That's valuable. That's very valuable. Uh, but at the same time, it's also inherently dependent on on a lot of different kinds of contexts that I think sometimes a more culture general, as Carrie and I have talked about in Allison over the years, culture general approach is a little bit more enduring and is a little bit less reliant on the, the, pres- the presenter or the teacher, him or herself. So doesn't rely as heavily on um, you know, when you lived in a place or what region of the place that you lived in. So we, you know, here at the university, at Marine Corps University, focus um, a little bit more broader on cultural differences from an organizational perspective. And so I, I think there's, you know, there's a lot more I could say, but but the last thing would be that it, I think it also helps. Um, and I've been really um, impressed by um, some folks in our community that focus on cultural heritage or cultural property protection because it's tangible. It's something that students and folks can latch on to. I feel sometimes um, my background's in communication. And, and though I, I really do feel strongly um, you know, about the idea that we don't interact with cultures, we interact with people. So I tend to focus on, on the communication skills. They still can be somewhat nebulous to people. They can be a little bit squishy. And so I'm always looking for ways as we um, make the case for the value of culture education to, to start off with something more tangible like cultural property protection or cultural heritage. Uh, so that's just one angle or, or one approach to, to your question. But um, I'll turn it over to Carrie and Allison if they have anything to add. Sure. And Carrie, I, I would Allison? add to that oh, no. that I think one of our goals, one of our goals in professional military education is to broaden the thinking of our students. And so even if the services don't recognize an immediate application for cultural training, um, they they can still recognize that understanding culture is part of a broadening education. And in the last couple of years, we've had a lot of discussion around the notion of strategic empathy and culture as a lens, I think, that helps students uh, acquire strategic empathy for understanding um, adversaries competitors as well as allies. And so that's been uh, one one way, I think, to incorporate cultural considerations into the curriculum, even though um, the, the kind of overt recognition of the need for cultural understanding is not as widely as ac- accepted as it used to be um, in, you know, 10 years ago. I'll just emphasize uh, one aspect of what's already been said by uh, Lauren and Allison is that it's really important to keep the pilot lights on in terms of the military's cultural capabilities. And I, I think the best way that you can do that 
is to help the military personnel build the conceptual knowledge and the skills that they need. And then they can make their own decisions about the utility of that. And I think in all of our experience, the people who use the concepts and skills, whether they're using them overseas or they're using them to deal with uh, diversity uh, in their workplace or to deal with the State Department or whatever it is, they often become the biggest advocates. And the best way to keep creating those advocates who can keep some degree of capability going is through professional military education. And that, and there's something, when we talk about skills and communication, one of the things I did come across in reading the essays in the book was the uh, the somewhat, let's say, ambivalent or even fraught relationship between uh, cultural programs and language programs. Uh, that language acquisition is a specific skill and the military likes specific skills. So sometimes it's easier to want to encourage people to learn languages than it is for them to really think about cultural differences. But language alone isn't, is not is only going to get you so far. I did notice the book included one of my favorite quotes, right, that somebody can speak three languages and they're a jerk in all of them, um, that that's not really very helpful. But I um, language programs persist even when the cultural programs come and go. And how, I mean, are the language programs a way to keep that pilot light lit or are they in a completely different, completely different silo than cultural programs? I think that they have some promise in that regard, but in my experience, uh, most of what was being provided by language programs was culture specific mm. Um, if it was there at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really did not get at the transferable concepts and skills that we were trying to to build that people could use regardless of where they went. That doesn't mean that those programs could not be uh, realigned to do that. Uh, but at the moment, I think they survive in part because they produce a uh, visible, audible, and tangible skill. And one that the military has figured out how to quantify. And that is what makes it easier for them to maintain funding, maintain attention. And they, they were only able to do that because of substantial investment in developing scales and validating those scales. And they maintain that capability in terms of the assessment and you know, developing the oral proficiency interview and things like that for a number of different languages. And that kind of uh, financial investment has never been made in cultural skills. Uh, even a, a fraction of the investment has never been made in cultural skills. So we don't, we still don't have uh, really good validated tools to assess the cultural skills of military personnel um, even after the you know, number of years of these cultural training programs, uh, assessing the learning outcomes was uh, never really received the kind of investment that it needed uh, to be able to um, demonstrate those quantitative outcomes to the same degree that you have with language. I think it, it might be worth pointing out at this stage that one of the pieces of the this particular arc uh, of culture programs that I think isn't broadly understood is that although it seems long, there was, I, I would say, maybe eight to 10 years of, particularly on the training side, programs being very, very heavily focused on getting training to people who were deploying and needing it right now. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that that was the emphasis. And any attention to assessment or anything else was seen as secondary. And then you had maybe three or four years when it would have been possible to really get senior level attention to the kinds of uh, developments that Allison is talking about. Uh, not that they weren't needed earlier, not that people weren't trying to get it done earlier, they were, but just getting the necessary attention to it. Um, and then we immediately moved into the decline. So um, I think there, although there, you know, you can say that this particular cycle has lasted about 15, 16 years um, of intense activity, there really was a pr- relatively short window when you could do things that were uh, sensible and taking a long view of the capability development. And there was some science and technology investment during that period, but it was largely invested in modeling and simulation um, and the idea that you could use automated tools to understand cultures rather than using science and technology to help advance the skills of personnel. It was in the, the idea that you could you could model your way into cultural understanding rather than enable the personnel to understand the cultures. And so that there was an opportunity there with some of the science and technology programs like the human social behavioral modeling program, but um, it, it was invested in in other uh, other goals than uh, in supporting personnel and training. I mean, it, it is it is a legitimate problem that cultural developing cultural knowledge, cultural understanding is difficult. You cannot predict where the future problems in the world are going to be. So unless you want to prepare everybody for everything, you will there will be reactions to uh, problems. Uh, but you know, it's as like I guess like John Kennedy said about going to the moon, right? We don't do these things because they're easy. We do them because they are hard. Um, and so, uh, as we wrap up this half hour, which has basically flown by, I am curious for each of you, you know, what is your hope for the future? If this book is a message in a bottle, what do you hope will be done with it? Uh, when somebody bothers to, uh, to pick the bottle up and open it, what, what role can or should, uh, civilian academics play civilian institutions play in keeping this kind of, this kind of interest alive so that they can step back in when the time comes to step back in? So uh, I, I think I have a, a number of hopes, right? One is that uh, people will actually look in the archives and look in the literature rather than starting from scratch next time. Um, but also that between now and then we will do some work to help uh, with the, the relationships between the military and certain scholarly communities that are very, very fraught. Um, I've done a lot of work on that over the course of the last 20 years, uh, particularly with anthropology, but also with some other disciplines. And while I think we made some progress on getting academic communities to think differently about the military, have a, a, a deeper understanding of what military organizations and military personnel are, are trying to do when they reach out for help uh, from social sciences, uh, I'm less persuaded that the military learned how to approach academic communities more effectively. And that has a really significant impact. It's not just about playing nice. It's about uh, being able to effectively access the expertise that you need when you need to ask difficult questions. Um, so my hope is that the military will take advantage of this time period to actually start trying to rebuild those relationships in a more sustainable way. Um, and also looking for 
more enduring ways to integrate these sciences, not just culture programs, uh, but also uh, more broadly across PME, as uh, Lauren and Allison have spoken about, and in other ways that are just not so vulnerable to disappearing when one type of capability is cut. Fair. Very good. Lauren, what do you think? Um, I'll, I'll just start off, and I'll, I'll be brief about this, but I, I just want to make a quick mention um, that while I was working on on my particular chapter for the book, um, I was also doing some research devoted to the role of, of transparency about failure in teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll circle this back to your question in a second. Sure. Um, so, but my chapter includes a lot of my own teaching failures um, and what I did with those failures, sort of to try to simultaneously, one, you know, help junior faculty learn from them, maybe by offering some faculty development sessions and things like that. And two, to use them as a, as a means for connecting with colleagues about something real. Um, I'll just as a quick example, during one of my, my first class, my first culture classes at Marine Corps University, um, I had a student look straight at me while I was teaching and say, and this is a quote, I'm so sick of this squishy culture shit. And you can delete that out if you don't want the, the swear in the podcast. Um, but oh, I can I, I think promise we're have you, to leave I did not there. have. A, <laughs> we may just have to. Uh, this is a PG thirteen podcast, right, Ron? Um, so I didn't, as you can imagine, I did not have a a short, pithy, intelligent response um, to that to that that proclamation that I wish I had had. And so some of the, the pieces of, of advice that I give in my chapter are specifically about things that I wish I had known, like based on my own teaching failures, things that I wish I had done differently and, and the importance of um, strategic messaging about the value of culture. I mean, we are in a people business. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to, to message that culture isn't just about something that other people have out there, in Iraq or Afghanistan, but rather, right, that, that we that we not only have but live every single day, I, I think is a really important message that I wish I had thought to emphasize earlier in my career. Um, I just, I learned the hard way from a series of failures, I mean, not getting promoted when I was down at Air University. Um, I learned the hard way that it's, it's not so much what you do, but what people perceive that you do uh, tends to to be the, the message that is valued in, on promotion committees. So I'll just wrap up by saying that, you know, it's a double-edged sword with failure. We need them to grow. We need them to develop. We need them to connect with colleagues in, in a real and meaningful way. But at the same time, they can work against us on our teaching evaluations or maybe the perceived value of our research and, again, how soft and squishy it is. So, so yeah, all that's to say um, there's a lot I wish I had done differently. I tried to capture that in the chapter, but I've used those failures as a way to reconnect with civilian colleagues at, at civilian universities and to try to, to be better about building those relational bridges across culture and communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, as they say, uh, in education as in life, our mistakes are often our best teachers. I've made plenty of them, <laughs> but I'll stop there and turn it over to Allison. That's all right. That's a, that, that, that's a very, uh, very good point. Allison, what are you, what are your thoughts, hopes for the future of culture as, as, a, as, a, as a subject? So my hope would be that from this round of uh, cultural capability and training that the military has learned to ask more critical questions of the academic community when they're developing these kinds of programs and capabilities. Um, 
so that they they can use social science effectively. Um, and on the social science side, I hope that social scientists and behavioral scientists that engage with the military can learn to better communicate their findings to the military in a way that's useful to them. I think there were have been a lot of lessons and some quite quite a few successes. I think. Um, in these cultural training programs um, that I hope will be retained for the future. So, for example, the adoption of the culture general approaches to cultural training and education was a success story. Uh, it, it hasn't been retained as much as we would like, but that was a success story. Um, and we see repeatedly with other issues where there are kind of trendy social science topics that are uh, that that pop up in the military, and I'd like to see leaders become more critical in asking questions about these issues. So one of them, you know, that we see now is the whole notion of generations. And so there are some social scientists that are now trying to be more prominent in questioning the whole idea of the the notion that generations are fundamentally different from each other. Um, so there there's some good critical questions about that and how you manage personal from different generations. Uh, and I, so I think that the, the cultural lessons can apply um, to some of these other areas where behavioral and social science could be really useful to the military if leaders are asking the right kinds of questions and how they use it, and if social and behavioral scientists are, are more effective in communicating the state of the science in a way and the limitations of the science in a way that can be useful to the military. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess in, in the end, it all comes down to wanting to encourage as much regular communication as possible. And uh, we are certainly very pleased here at A Better Peace that Carrie Fosher, Lauren McKenzie, and Allison Abbey decided to join us today to talk about their work about military culture programs. There's a lot more to talk about, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have for now. So thank you to the three of you for joining us today on A Better Peace. Thank you, Ron. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You bet. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and send us suggestions for future programs. If you have not already, please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you have subscribed, because why wouldn't you want to subscribe to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast because that's how other people can find out about us. We're always interested in growing this community for conversations just like this, and we hope to be able to welcome you to future conversations. So until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.